But human rights matter, and they matter for a whole host of reasons. But they don't just, they're not, they're not just liberal values, right? They're profoundly central human values. And if we allow them to be eroded, we talk a lot in the counterterrorism world about resiliency. And when we talk about resiliency, we're nearly always talking about hardening buildings, structures, and you know, infrastructure, uh, like, like uh, power stations and roads, bridges, transport nodes, uh, those kind of things. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about the resiliency of values. And I, and I think that is a tremendous shame. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Declarations. From the Center of Governance and Human Rights at the University of Cambridge, my name is Monagasset. Today, we're going to talk about a very exciting, interesting, and informative topic. We're looking at the fight against terrorism, so counterterrorism measures, and specifically looking at it within a human rights framework. And I'm joined today by the wonderful Tom Parker. Tom Parker is the author of Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respecting Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. Until recently, he was chief of party of a European Union project providing assistance to the Office of the National Security Advisor in Baghdad, Iraq. Tom has previously served as an advisor on human rights and counterterrorism to United Nations Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force as the Policy Director for Terrorism, Counterterrorism and Human Rights for Amnesty International USA, as a War Crimes Investigator for the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, working in the field in Bosnia and Kosovo, and as an Intelligence Officer in the British Security Service MI5. As an independent consultant, he has worked on transitional justice and security sector reform projects on four continents and was one of the principal authors of the UN's Preventing Violent Extremism Plan of Action. Tom has taught undergraduate and postgraduate courses on international terrorism in Yale University's Residential College Seminar Program, Bard College's Globalization and International Affairs Program, and the National Defense University at Fort Bragg. He is a graduate of the London School of Economics, the University of Leiden and Brown, and has held research fellowships at Yale and Duke University. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast, um, and I'm really excited for the discussion we're about to have. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, before we start delving into the more substantive elements of your book, um, I kind of want to ask you why you wrote this book. So what was the purpose behind writing it and what you hope readers will get out of it? It was largely inspired by by the sort of the personal journey that I've been on as a, a counterterrorism professional. Um, you know, in, in my sort of 20s, I'd been involved in the security service, uh, working in a variety of fields, but mostly looking at counterterrorism. Um, you know, and I'd been a pretty standard, hard-charging counterterrorism officer. Um, you know, I was pretty, pretty aggressive and, and forward-leaning and uh, uh, very focused. Um, and I hadn't thought a great deal about the business of counterterrorism. You know, I was an investigator, I followed the evidence, I, I helped support operations and investigations and prosecutions. And it wasn't until I went to Iraq in 2003 as part of the Coalition Provisional Authority that I really came face to face with some of the uh, conundrums that you've, you face in counterterrorism, particularly when you start to become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And I was lucky enough after that experience to actually have some time to gather my thoughts. Um, I, I was offered a, a fellowship at Yale for six months, and I was able to kind of sit down and, and really think about 
my experiences for the first time and do some research as well. Um, I'd started to, to sort of apprehend that we had, in Iraq, I think, had driven a lot of the, the insurgency that we encountered by our actions. And I wanted to delve into other examples from history to see whether that was also the case. And, and the more research I did, the more I realized that actually governments typically um, were one of the main drivers of terrorist campaigns. Um, and that most terrorist campaigns had at their heart um, a dispute that was in part, you know, to some degree, there was some legitimacy to it. Um, and there were causes, you know, that were deeply rooted on both sides and that governments had their part to play in both, you know, in both the, laying the foundation for them and in perhaps, if they're smart enough, spotting the solutions and the way out of the conflict. Um, and that, that was really where it started. And, and uh, I say around about 2004, I did some research and that just sent me off on a journey. And the more research that I did, the more I discovered, the more I realized that there was quite a lot in this idea. Um, and I started to do research on, on some of the principles underpinning terrorism, reading an awful lot of things written by terrorists, manuals, communiques, uh, memoirs about why terrorists were doing what they did and what they were trying to achieve by doing it. And I started to see a pattern emerging um, that actually one of the major drivers of terrorism was human rights caused by or uh, human rights abuses committed by agents of the state, um, either giving rise to terrorism or putting fuel on the fire once a terrorist threat emerged. Um, and in fact, that's so common um, that, that uh, Louise Richardson, who uh, wrote a fantastic book about terrorism called uh, What Terrorists Want uh, back in the early 2000s, she had this one throwaway phrase that really stuck with me about the pathology of state overreaction. Um, and the more research I did into that, the more I, I, I was convinced that she was onto something. And, and, and uh, in fact, if we really wanted to start digging into solutions to terrorism, we really had to turn the lens back on ourselves and understand the role that we were playing in this dynamic. That's a very interesting statement you make. And it's, it's a polarizing issue, right? Because on one end, you have people who are saying that it's, it's, it's necessary, it's absolutely necessary to use force. Uh, to intervene. And on the other hand, you, you see people saying that, you know, there should absolutely be no intervention in the sovereignty of another nation. Um, and I'm really interested in part three of your book, where you, you speak about the political legitimacy of using statements such as prisoner of war, um, and how some, you know, some terrorist groups actually want to be, terrorists want to be prisoners of war because that sort of affords them different treatment. Can you sort of elaborate on that? No, absolutely. Well, terrorism is, is really about contesting legitimacy. You know, terrorist groups are, are trying to argue that their position has you know, weight and legitimacy to it, that they represent a legitimate point of view, and that the state doesn't, or at least the arguments that the state are putting forward are not actually as legitimate as, as, as the state is claiming. Um, and that is, you know, that, that is the heart of most sort of conflicts between terrorists and, 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 and governments right there. And the labels that we use to describe the players in that conflict are really, really important. Now, you know, terrorism obviously is an incredibly pejorative label. Um, you know, it is designed to be pejorative. Um, and most terrorists don't like having that label applied to them. Um, in fact, one of the very first theoretical treatises written about terrorism, which was written by a, a German called Karl Heinzen back in the, uh, the, the late 1840s, at the time of the 1848 revolutions. He wrote a book called Death and Freedom or Murder and Freedom, um, which coins the term freedom fighter. So right from the beginning, the first person talking about using 
murder as a political weapon, is also being very careful to make sure that the use of that tool is being ascribed to a freedom fighter rather than a terrorist. So people have understood the power of these terms. And the concept of being a prisoner of war, of course, is tied up in the idea of being a legitimate combatant. You know, throughout history, wars have been fought between states. A prisoner of war status is something that has typically, historically, and legally been tied to being a member of a legitimate state force that is party to a conflict. Uh, and that is the status that terrorists are trying to lay claim to when they, when they want or, or ask for prisoner of war status. You talk about sort of the nine the post 9-11 rhetoric change and you know the use of the words such as prisoner of war and you spoke about your involved you, you being involved in the 2003 entry into Iraq and that was that was a highly controversial use of force and there, there was tons of international law discussion on whether it was you know even legal in any way shape or form so I kind of want I want to talk about that change in narrative and what you've seen in terms of counterterrorism prior to 9-11 and how that's changed after 9-11? Um, well, I think that's a really interesting question. There's quite a lot to unpack in it. Um, one of the, the big differences for the involvement of the United States, you know, as an active participant in, in this issue, prior to 9-11, when states like the United Kingdom or other Western European states were responding to terrorism, they were typically doing it within a rule of law framework. Um, and so the natural corollary to that was that the, the people using violence uh, were illegitimate because they were criminals, it was criminal activity, and it was something that could be dealt with best within the criminal justice system. Um, and you know, there were definitely uh, members of terrorist organizations. A great example would be the IRA that contested this idea that they were criminals and wanted and asked for prisoner of war status. And of course, that was one of the issues that the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland were all about. But it's really after 9-11 where you see uh, you know, the, the, the coining of the term the global war on terror and the use of this war paradigm becoming sort of part and parcel of everyday conversation about how and why, how and what one should do to counter terrorism. Um, and that really changes the type of discussion, the type of tools suddenly on the table in a way that when you're dealing in a law enforcement context, you know, you're, you're not contemplating using things like targeted killings, right? And I mean, your, your, your um, go-to tool is in, to investigate and bring to justice criminal actors. Um, once you're fighting a war on terror, of course, you're using military tools, you're using military hardware, and it's a very, very different proposition to the kind of conflicts you saw um, Western governments embroiled in in the 1970s against left-wing groups like uh, you know, Bader Meinhof or the Italian Red Brigades or groups like uh, the Provisional IRA or, or ETA in Spain. Um, so I think you see a real sort of paradigmic shift after September 11th, and that's one of the reasons we see this language change. Speaking about, you know, the use of force against counterterrorism, what, what is your view on, you know, the use of force and sometimes um, you've mentioned in your book that sometimes the extreme use of force may be necessary. So what's your view on, you know, the necessity and proportionality of the use of force and use of force uh, in fighting terrorism? Right. I don't think I would put it that they, quite in the terms that extreme, that, 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 that there are occasions that the extreme use of force is necessary. I'd put it slightly differently. There are certainly circumstances where there is no alternative but to use force. But 
in those circumstances, you have to do that legitimately. So states have a legitimate right to self-defense. Law um, enforcement personnel have a legitimate right to use force up to and including deadly force, but only in circumstances where there is no other choice and where essentially the, you know, that they are acting to preserve life. That's, that's the basic standard. Force, the use of force by law enforcement should always be calibrated to the lowest necessary level. Um, so just because you're facing a serious situation doesn't mean that you should immediately revert to using the, you know, the biggest gun in your arsenal. You should use the least amount of force to obtain the lawful objective. I do think myself, and this is a personal view, that there are some circumstances out with law that are very complicated. Um, and I think a great example of that is, for example, Anwar Awalaki, the uh, spiritual and to a certain extent operational leader of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, a US citizen that was operating from the interior of Yemen where there was no possibility of getting support from local law enforcement or local forces to apprehend him. He was actively engaged in attacks on the United States both launched from, um, from the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, there's a, an instance, for example, of trying to get bombs hidden in uh, printers onto, onto to aircraft heading towards the United States. And then he's also in contact with people carrying out terrorist attacks like uh, the underwear bomber, uh, like the Fort Hood shooter. Um, so this is a person who's playing a very, very active ongoing role in, in um, supporting and encouraging terrorist, you know, really quite deadly terrorist attacks against the United States. In those circumstances, you know, if you're the United States government, you do have an obligation to protect your citizens. Um, and if you cannot do that under the color of law or within an existing legal framework, um, it's probably asking too much of a government that it then just shrugs its shoulders and walks away from the problem. I mean, no government is going to accept that state of affairs. And in those sorts of contexts, you start looking to basic fundamental concepts such as self-defense as providing some sort of rubric for when it may or may not be legitimate to use force in those circumstances. So, I mean, I would argue that if you were to take into account, and typically the test for this is the, the imminence of the threat, um, mm -hmm. but if, if there is a sense that this threat is really serious and the threat is imminent and you have no other alternative, I would argue that a state probably has the right to use force to protect itself. Um, and I would argue that the UN Charter recognizes that, and I would argue that you know, fundamental principles of international law and human rights would recognize that inherent right to self-defense. But it's a really complicated issue, and it's certainly something that I think should be used absolutely as a measure of last resort and should be 100% the exception to the rule. You've mentioned, obviously, the Caroline criteria, so instant, <laughs> overwhelming, uh, leaving no room for other means. But do you think that Sometimes I feel that states and, you know, you read about a lot of states kind of expanding the scope of Article 2.4 um, and the United States has been criticized for expanding to such an extent to using it to protect their citizens in other nations, which is infringing upon the sovereignty of another nation. So do you think that this sort of expansion in the scope of the use of force and self-defense is necessary in the fight against non-state actors? Or do you think Sometimes there's a, there's a line that's being crossed. As I said, I think there are extraordinary circumstances where you could make the argument that it would be necessary. The problem I would have with the use of force, and this would be certainly 
a problem I have with the Bush administration, but to be honest, this is a problem primarily with the Obama administration, is the use of force in such circumstances became overly permissive. I mean, way beyond any necessary level you could make an argument for. And if you look at the number of civilian deaths associated, for example, with US drone strikes in Pakistan, I find them completely indefensible. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to get precise figures for this. The Bureau of Investigative Journalists kept a pretty good running tally where they used local reporters on the ground to try and identify after each strike who was killed and you know, how old was that person, what were their connections both within the community and allegedly perhaps to, 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 to Pakistani Taliban or other you know, armed groups. Um, and they reckoned that their tally was that well over a thousand innocent people had been killed. I mean, we know, for example, that, that scores of children were killed in one particular drone strike that hit a school. So, yeah, I, I think it has become far, far too permissively used at all. And of course, by using it, you open the door to everybody else using it as well. Um, and, you know, your problem is once you start carrying out acts like this, how do you make the argument that your use of lethal force in a foreign country is any different, for example, than the Russian government sending two uh, GRU officers to Salisbury to kill you know, a, a, a former intelligence officer that's betrayed their country. But the, the problem is you, you, you've created an environment where everybody can start making those arguments, particularly as that label of terrorist starts getting thrown around by, by governments who, who use this term in a far broader sense than perhaps the United States would or Western European governments would, um, often just simply to blacken the reputation of their political opponents. So I think this becomes you know, a, a really, really, really slippery slope. Um, and unfortunately, I think not, not merely has the US embarked on that slippery slope, it's pretty much slid to the bottom. Interesting that you, you mentioned the Caroline case, and, and for those listening who aren't aware of it, one of the most interesting things about it, right? This is an instance where the United Kingdom, where the British, carried out a preemptive raid on American territory to preempt American support for who the for individuals supporting uh, Quebec, Quebecois independence that the British considered to be, to all intents and purposes, terrorists. So it's so interesting that this, this imminent standard for preemptive action actually dates back to a circumstance in which the United States would be perhaps the state sponsor of a terrorist group. Um, so, I mean, these, these, these things, you know, they, they go back a long way and context and perspective can be very illuminating. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's tremendously important that we bear that in mind and that we keep the bar as high as we possibly can while ensuring that, you know, that the citizens are protected um, and they get the opportunity to enjoy their full rights as well, free from intimidation, free from the threat of murder and, and uh, yeah, other other sort of threats on their, their person and their livelihoods. Um, but that's that's a difficult balance to strike sometimes. Very, very true. It is it is a very difficult balance to strike. Um, on page 767 of your book, you mention that placing human rights at the center of the state's counter-terrorist response is not only the right thing to do, it is the smart thing to do as well. Um, can you elaborate on how a state could place human rights at the center of their counter-terrorist response? It should be remarkably easy, right? Because most states will be responding within their own domestic legal framework. And, you know, most states around the world have domestic legal frameworks that are at least aligned with international human rights law, if not actively incorporating large aspects of international human rights law 
into their domestic legislation. Like, for example, in the UK, we have the Human Rights Act, which incorporates the European Convention of Human Rights into British law. So it shouldn't really be much of a stretch, um, certainly in a democratic state, to conduct your counter-terrorist activities within a human rights framework, because you should be doing that anyway, um, in the course of your normal lawful activity as a police officer or a security or intelligence officer. So um, as I say, it shouldn't be an enormous challenge. The way I like to think about it, and I use this analogy in the book, is operating within a human rights framework is a really good training. Um, there's, so there's a famous analogy used by the Israeli Supreme Court where, where they make the point that um, you know, the states have to be legitimate, they have to operate within the rules, and the, the, I think it's um, I forget the, 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 the justice that mentions it, but he has this phrase about, we may have to fight with one hand tied behind our back, but that's okay because we're fighting from the moral high ground. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, a noble sentiment, but it's a fairly inaccurate one, I think, and I don't think the analogy really serves the, the point that he's trying to make. The reality is operating with a human rights framework is basically about operating with discipline. Um, it teaches you to use your strength in a measured and controlled way, to choose your moments to use that strength, and it stops you from making sort of wild swings and, and, and crazy punches that won't help you and ultimately will help your opponent. Um, so the analogy I always use is actually it's, it's, it's basically about becoming disciplined and better trained. In my time as an investigator, I cannot recall any case where I did not have the tools I needed to do the job. There were occasionally obstacles, and those obstacles just require creative thinking. Um, and if you're employing the right people, they should have the creative tools and the the experience and the knowledge to find legal ways to achieve their objective. It, it really isn't actually that difficult. And you should be challenged as a representative of the state to hold yourself to a higher standard. And you should be challenged to do your best work every day. So I don't find this a particularly remarkable standard to impose on people with, working in counterterrorism. You mentioned uh, prisoners, uh, prisons, prison officials. Can we speak a little bit about interrogation methods? So in, in, in your book, you, you sort of mention, you know, the different interrogation methods sometimes being used for prisoners who are accused of acts of terrorism. Can we speak a little bit more about uh, interrogation methods? Can we talk about what the peace method is um, and how, how you feel interrogation methods can be respectful of human rights and how they can sometimes um, not be? Well, absolutely. Well, I, I think there's a couple of different conversations to have. There's a, there's a legal conversation and there's an efficacy conversation. So let, let's deal with the legal conversation first, which is that torture and cruel and human and degrading treatment is not merely unlawful, it is an international crime. Um, and if you commit or, um, an act of torture, you have committed a universal offense and there is no statute of limits, uh, limitations on it. And you will be a torturer to your, until your dying day. Um, and you can be prosecuted anywhere on the planet for that because the Convention Against Torture is considered a peremptory norm of international law. So the point I often make when I'm doing trainings for people on this is we still prosecute Nazis. World War II was 70 years ago, and we're still prosecuting Nazis, right? So you commit an act of torture, that's the company you're going to find yourself in. Um, then we can have the conversation about efficacy. Um, you get a lot of sort of poses in the national security community that want to be tough. You know, the, the, what was the, the Donald Trump? I mean, you know, the, 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 a caricature of this kind of character 
But, you know, Donald Trump had this phrase on the, the campaign trail, we should be waterboarding terrorists because it, it works, and if it doesn't work, we should do it because they deserve it. Kind of in a nutshell, that summarizes the case for torture. Uh, other than the fact that, actually, historically, if you look at the record, torture has a pretty, ma uh, pretty mixed uh, record of success in terms of eliciting information. Used as a tool of intimidation or forced compliance, has a slightly better track record of success. But as a tool to elicit accurate information, it's not got a great track record. That's not to say some people don't cooperate under torture. But the reality is that history has taught us that highly motivated individuals actually are pretty good at resisting, you know, really quite horrendous torture. I'll give you some examples of this. There is a uh, uh, IRA commander uh, during the Irish War of Independence, uh, Sean Ford, and he is caught by the Brits. Uh, he's organizing, if I, if I remember correctly, I think he's, he's organizing IRA activity down in Cork. Um, he's operating under the pseudonym of Thomas O'Malley. The Brits arrest him, I believe, as Sean Ford in his real name. They do not realize that Sean Ford is Thomas O'Malley. So they've got the person they're looking for in custody, but they don't realize it. They do, however, torture Ford, and they do all sorts of really unpleasant things. They knock all his teeth out. They heat pokers up in a fire and pincers up in a fire, and they use you know, molten uh, pincers to pull flesh off his back. And Ford doesn't give him anything. And in fact, you know, he, he wrote in his memoirs that I, I didn't think they were playing the game, and it just hardened my resolve not to cooperate with them. Um, and there are loads and loads of examples of people like that through history. Probably the most famous would be Henri Alleg, who was a, a communist newspaper editor, editor who was arrested in Algeria during the Algerian War of Independence. Now, this guy is a newspaper editor, right? He's not a hardened terrorist. Um, but he wrote about his experiences in a, in a, in a book, very famous book called The Question, about how he was tortured by the, the French paratroopers. Um, and they did everything to him. I mean, they waterboarded him. They used an electric shock on him. They gave him sodium pentothal. They beat him up. And all they wanted was a very simple piece of information, who was hiding you. Um, and he didn't give it to them. Um, and probably the most famous example, since I, I cited Trump's uh, reference to waterboarding, um, perhaps would be Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, we know that despite the fact that he was waterboarded almost 200 times, um, when he was asked, when he was being waterboarded, about the identity of bin Laden's career, he still lied about it. So, you know, that, those three examples from history of, of people actively involved um, in terrorist movements or in supporting terrorist movements who were tortured and failed to give up information. So, you know, we know it doesn't work very well. And in fact, we actually know from recovered records from the Gestapo during World War II that, again, the Gestapo also understood that it was not a very effective intelligence-gathering tool. It was a very effective tool of intimidation, but the Gestapo themselves understood that it wasn't effective means of eliciting information. So that's sort of a whistle-stop tour of the downsides of using torture. Then we have the upsides of doing interviewing properly. And you mentioned the peace technique. The peace technique is a, an interview standard that's used um, uh, in, in, in uh, the UK, uh, a number of Commonwealth countries, and a number of Scandinavian countries to train police officers to conduct what's known as rapport-building interviews. And here the idea is to give the person space to speak. Um, you give them an opportunity to tell their story. Um, you draw information out of them that way. And the advantage of this is that you actually give the person space to you know, inform you of areas that perhaps you hadn't anticipated. But the problem with coercive interrogation 
is it forces you down a path that you direct. And if the information that you have at the start of the interview is wrong or incomplete, there's no space in the way that you are conducting your coercive interview to recorrect, right? Because there's no opportunity for the person who you are torturing to, to, mm. to make a discursive remark that says, you know, I don't know why you keep asking me about Paul, smack. You know, you should be asking me about John, right? That just isn't going to happen in a coercive interview. And the reality is, particularly in post-incident circumstances, um, but in the immediate aftermath of arrests, um, particularly if, if the person being arrested might be somebody who's new on your radar, you don't know everything. Um, you don't have a complete picture of what's happened. And giving the person the space to, to share their version of events, even if they're lying, actually gives you a lot more to work with from the point of view of information that can then be tested and investigated. And when it works, it can work very effectively. And probably the best example of this uh, from the modern era, uh, the modern era would be uh, Ali Soufan, who was an FBI special agent uh, who was involved in the USS Cole investigation, was in Yemen at the time of the September 11th attacks. There was an Al-Qaeda member in custody in Yemen that he was able to get access to. Um, now, this individual had not cooperated with the FBI up until this point. But Soufan, through a combination of, of, of rapport building and actually just demonstrating courtesy, was able to get this guy to talk. And one of the uh, techniques that he used was actually bringing um, sugar-free cookies to the interview. Now, the suspect was diabetic, um, and so that served a couple of purposes. One, it was a very sort of hospitable gesture, but two, it also demonstrated that you had a great deal of knowledge about the person sitting on the other side of the table. In the intelligence business, this is a technique we call we know all. Um, and by a combination of solicitation, um, patience, and demonstrating cultural sensitivity, Sufan was able to get this guy to talk, and he was able to identify several of the 9-11 uh, hijackers, which was the first hard um, new information that we had after the 9-11 attacks as to who was behind it and responsible for it. So it was a critical interview at the time. He also had great success in Guantanamo, simply letting people use his sat phone to call home and talk to their family members until the army shut him down. But he got two people talking that way as well, simply by an act of kindness or, or a simple sort of gesture of humanity. Um, and again, this is a concept in, in, in interrogation known as dislocation of expectation. If somebody's expecting you to come in all tough and aggressive, if you're actually just really nice, it's quite hard to push back against. Um, you know, I've often said if I was an interrogator at Guantanamo or an interviewer at Guantanamo, we'd be doing the interview sitting on the beach eating baklava because that's the way you get people to talk to you. Strapping them in a dentist chair and, you know, threatening them with a military dog or, or threatening to smear menstrual blood on them. This is not conducive to an effective conversation. Um, so, you know, th then that was the heart of my statement. It's not just, you know, smart to do it this way. Doing it the other way is dumb. Doesn't work very well. And typically it reflects frustration. Um, lack of imagination, lack of information, and just a desire for payback more than it actually reflects a desire to do effective investigative or intelligence work. And that's the problem. It's more about mm -hmm. payback than it is about actually advancing the case. Speaking of Guantanamo, your thoughts on Guantanamo as an institution as a whole? Because there have been, you know, accusations of uh, torture being committed, false convictions, false confessions. Well, I, I think history will look back on Guantanamo as, again, one of the stupidest and most unnecessary own goals in the history of criminal investigation. Um, you know, I mean, we still, so I, I'll declare an interest in this. When I was at Amnesty International, um, I was one of the monitors that got sent down to, to monitor 
um, the trials that were going on at the time at the military commissions in Guantanamo. So I've been there a few times. Um, I've had the opportunity to sit in the military commissions and watch the court in progress. I was actually there on the opening day of the 9-11 trial. And, you know, what it is absolutely incredible to think is that's almost a decade ago now, and they still haven't got any closer to, to, to a conviction. I can't think of any trial in American history that's gone on even a fraction as long as this trial has. And as a result, you don't have closure for family members. You don't have a definitive historical record. Um, you know, it's one of the great things you get out of a court case. It's not just about convicting people. It's about giving the, the um, victims a day in court. It's about giving them closure. It's about you know, establishing an unimpeachable historical record. We have none of those things because of this process, which, of course, is also massively tainted by the torture that people experienced absolutely in the black sites and most likely also in Guantanamo itself although perhaps not quite to such an extreme extent as they did in the CIA black sites, all of which we can't hear talked about in the courts because it's considered a state secret. Although I do believe there was a judgment at the Supreme Court in the last couple of days, which I have not read, that might have challenged that, uh, that contention. Um, but it's nuts. It, it's taken you know, more than a decade. If these people had been brought to federal court, they would have been convicted years ago. And, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, it's not that hard a case because he admitted publicly that he was behind the 9-11 attacks, right? I mean, these aren't hard cases to prove in, in, in most of the instances of the individuals who are being held there. What's making them very difficult to prosecute is the way these individuals were treated after they were brought into custody. And again, that's a completely inflicted own goal. So, I mean, I think it's incredibly foolish. The other thing to say about Guantanamo is the whole process is kind of rigged. Now, as you're probably aware, there have been very few actual convictions in Guantanamo, and the ones, I think, with all but one exception that have taken place have all been plea deals. Now, the dirty little secret is that there's no other way to get off the island, because here's the kicker in Guantanamo. Yes, you have the military commissions, but the people being held in Guantanamo are not being held in Guantanamo as criminals. They're being held in Guantanamo as prisoners of war. So that means... If you fight your case and you're found innocent, that does not guarantee that you get to leave Guantanamo, right? You don't get a criminal conviction, but you say exactly where you were in the cell you were in at the beginning of the, the trial. You just haven't been convicted of a crime. But you're still considered a combatant, albeit an unlawful one, uh, by the United States, and so they won't release you. So the only way to get off the island is to do the deal because that's the only way to guarantee that once convicted, you will be released. You know, that, that's insane. That sounds like a grave injustice. And these days we're hearing a lot of pushback, you know, against the prison system as a whole, um, as you're obviously probably aware of um, from the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. People have been calling for, you know, abolishing the police system, abolishing the prison system and the prison industrial complex and things like that. And I want to read out a quote to our listeners from your book on page 685 that says, once a prison, the authorities have a real opportunity to engage, de-radicalize, and perhaps even reform men and women formerly committed to political violence. The effective engagement from prison authorities can make a critical difference, sometimes even with the most calcitrant prisoners. So I want to hear about what your thoughts are on the prison system, if you really are like a believer in the ability for you know the authorities to actually actually do this, this is quite a big statement. I think they can do this. That there's no guarantee, though, that every engagement will be successful for, from it. Um, but I mean, 
most successful counterterrorism is about incremental progress rather than, I mean, there's no silver bullet. Everything is hard yards. Um, every victory is hard. And every step forward requires a lot of effort and a lot of work and often comes with a step back along the way as well. Um, so engaging with um, both individuals who go into the prison system radicalized um, or engaging with individuals who are at risk of being radicalized in prison can be done successfully in some cases um, and is sometimes not done successfully. And we do have a couple of rare examples and the, um, the, the, the chap who attacked the students on the at London Bridge, or I, I, I forget the, the hall where the, the incident started, you know, was a person who'd been through a de-radicalization program and was, was considered mm -hmm. to have, you know, exited the, the movement. So, I mean, there are cases of recidivism, but if you look at recidivism in terrorism-related cases, it's a far, far lower figure than recidivism rates for sort of violent, ordinary violent crimes, what we used to call in Northern Ireland ODCs or ordinary decent crime. Um, you know, it, it is much lower. But the reality with, I mean, it's a really complicated process. You know, there's a couple of different issues you need to, to address. There are, you know, some of the personal factors that, that every individual has, and they'll be different in each case. And some of those you may be able to work with. Some of those might be a lot harder to work with. But there are also societal issues that no matter what you do in the prison, if the person goes back out into the situation that radicalized them in the first place, and perhaps legitimately so, right? Um, you know, if you were a Catholic in Northern Ireland in the 1960s, you were being discriminated against. Um, you were a second-class citizen, and no amount of talking to you in, you know, in a, in a de-radicalization program to explain that you should make your peace with it would be fair or likely to work, right? So, you know, there are things that you can do to engage, um, but the supposition that all the political points of view on the other side are all wrong. And if you simply educate the person better, they will no longer ascribe to that set or series of beliefs, I think is deeply flawed. Um, what you might be able to do is to get that individual to think that a violent response is wrong, but you're unlikely to be able to move them that far away from their original diagnosis about what the problem is in their society, because there's probably some legitimacy to their point of view. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement's a great case in point. And um, you know, just despite my accent, and I've used we a lot when talking about the UK. Um, I'm actually an American citizen. I live in the United States. So, you know, I'm, I'm both. I'm a dual national. Um, and, you know, I've, I work a lot with law enforcement. I have a background in law enforcement. And I think American law enforcement is deeply broken. Um, that's not to say I, I'm not a supporter of the concept of defunding the police in general. I, I think that there is a role for a police force, for certain. Um, and I think there are some very violent and dangerous people in society that cannot be stopped other than by you know, the state use of force. Um, it's as simple as that. So I don't think you're ever going to eliminate a police force, but you have to get to a point where you get away from a police force and back to a police service, right? The police can't be a self-licking ice cream cone, right? They don't exist. I mean, you, you get the sense with American law enforcement now that American policemen go out on the street to protect other American policemen, right? The American police exist to protect the public. Right? That is the purpose of policing. And if you've got to the point where you are scared of the public and you see the public as your enemy, then you've got a profound problem in your approach to policing. And you hear that. A number of times I've heard American police officers, quite liberal police officers, you know, use expressions like sometimes you have to be a cop and sometimes you have to be a warrior. 
right? You never have to be a warrior in law enforcement. It's a different job, right? Mm -hmm. Police and soldiers, it's not the same gig, not remotely the same gig. And if you've got a warrior mindset in policing, you're doing it wrong. So, I mean, I think there's, there's enormous room for reform, um, but I don't think you can replace every institution of policing you know, with social workers, right, or community engagement officers. You are going to, there are, as I say, there are dangerous and violent people in this world, a lot of them, you know, and, and they will not be stopped just by counseling sessions, unfortunately. Would <laughs> that it would be so, but it isn't. So, you know, you've, you've got to figure out how do we use tools smarter? Um, you know, I mean, and I think the idea of making sure that, you know, you're not always responding to mental health crisis with police officers, but you have other, other ways of responding. Um, you know, sort of like if, if you like mental health first responders, that's a really smart idea that could go a long way to reducing a certain degree of violence. You know, we had a case in America uh, this week where an elderly lady, lady with dementia was arrested for shoplifting. Um, and in the course of the arrest, they broke her arm. I mean, yeah. completely unnecessary situation. You know, completely unnecessary. And then they were caught on tape laughing about it in the police station. I mean, that is the evidence of a broken system. But that doesn't mean you can't do law enforcement better. Um, and, you know, I, I just use the phrase law enforcement. I, I think we need to get back towards this concept of a police service. It's a, a, a very instructive, for example, as part of the Northern Ireland peace process, the Royal Ulster Constabulary was renamed the Northern Ireland Police Service. And that was a deliberate way of trying to make it seem less confrontational. And they even put thought into the redesign of cat badges and things like that to try and make it a more inclusive force. Now, those are the sort of sensitive, smart steps that you can take to try and make um, a police force closer to its community. You know, the original concept behind policing, you know, if, if you look at uh, Sir Robert Peel's um, eight, eight precepts of policing, he has a, has a when, when the Metropolitan Police was founded, Peel had this, this concept, these, these basic sort of precepts about what policing should be. And one of the most famous is the people are the police and the police are the people, right? That's the kind of attitude you have to get to in effective enforcement. Um, and, you know, when you are alienating segments of your population, whether that's because you perceive them as being a terrorist threat or you perceive them as being a criminal threat um, or just perceive them as being different to, to you, you've got a profound problem in the way that you're approaching, you know, your core business, which is ultimately protecting an entire community. Um, and you can't do that without relationships with that entire community. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Those are all, those are very, very interesting points. And I know that has become a polarizing issue with some people advocating, especially in the United States, right? With some people advocating mm -hmm. for the uh, defunding the police and others saying that, you know, it should just be reformed. And some people saying mm -hmm. that, you know, the history of policing in the United States won't allow it to be fully reformed so that it's fair and just. Um, but yeah, I think this is a very interesting topic that our listeners will definitely be interested in thinking about. And I kind of just want to sort of round up our discussion by talking about where do you think we're moving in the world? So with our counterterrorism measures, with our respect for human rights and thinking about it within a human rights framework, where do you think, where do you think this fight against terrorism is going and where do you see it going? Well, I think it's done enormous damage to core liberal values. And I you know, use liberal with a small L, not in the political sense, but in the sense of you know, the, the, the kind of progressive, you know, improving the lot of everybody on the, pl the, the planet um, sense, right? You know, I mean, the, the idea behind human rights is, is to protect you from 
unlawful intrusion, intrusion into your private life so you can go about your business safely, that you can advocate for, for you know, your, your position without being repressed or oppressed. You know, th these are profoundly good things. We chip away at these values at our peril. Um, and I think we've done that over the last 20 years. And I think it's a tremendous shame that the United States was in the forefront of that because for the three decades beforehand, the United States have been in the forefront of promoting these values. Um, and I, I think it will go down as one of the most you know, striking vault facets in history and possibly one again, one of the big strategic own goals because American values were strong and they have become international values. And in the 1990s, even countries like Russia and China were to a degree in convergence with those values. And that, of course, is no longer the, the case. And, and largely that's because the United States gave everybody the space to step away um, through its own behavior. Um, and I think we've, you know, with the technology that, that is coming through um, this decade and next, the tremendous potential for abuse if human rights are not robustly protected is, is obvious for anybody to see. Just think of, you know, the use of facial recognition software, the ubiquity of, of um, camera coverages around, a, uh, you know, around a city like London now or, or in you know, numerous Chinese cities. Um, and then linking, you know, the concepts like uh, facial recognition and, and uh, you know, um, the panopticon sort of almost universal visual surveillance to concepts like social capital. Um, and people monitoring your social media posts. I mean, it, it's not hard to imagine a dystopia where everything you say is recorded, everywhere you go is recorded, everybody you meet is recorded, and your space to be a private free individual disappears. Now, that's, as I say, that, that's something of a dystopian fantasy at the moment, but the tools to make that dystopian fantasy a reality do exist, and, and they're getting more and more powerful every year. You know, something like facial recognition, it's still a bit wonky. It probably won't be in a decade. Um, and, and just think about how one's social space will just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Um, and, and that really, really worries me, to be honest. Potential for abuse by a hostile state is enormous. And the only thing really standing between us and those hostile states are universal values and norms like international human rights law that protect each and every individual on the planet from that level of state intrusion and intimidation. But the United States, and to a certain degree, the rest of the Western world has been complicit in weakening those protections over the last two decades, ultimately in response to what was never an existential threat from terrorism. I find, you know, I think it's deeply sad and deeply troubling. And, you know, we've, we've, we've given away so much to gain so little by taking these steps over the last 20 years. Um, and, and it seems we still haven't really learned the lesson. Um, and you can see that just from the way our politics has gone, both in the UK and in the US. Um, you know, we, we've, we've gone a long way backwards from where I think most people thought the world was going in the 1990s. And that's not a good thing. That's a really powerful point to end our discussion on. And I'd like to ask you one last thing. Is there any sort of, if our listeners were to leave this conversation, uh, with one main idea, one main point, what would that be? But human rights matter, and they matter for a whole host of reasons. But they don't just—they're not—they're not just liberal values, right? They're profoundly central human values. And if we allow them to be eroded, we talk a lot in the counterterrorism world about resiliency, 
And when we talk about resiliency, we're nearly always talking about hardening buildings, structures, and you know, infrastructure, uh, like, like uh, power stations and roads, bridges, transport nodes, uh, those kind of things. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about the resiliency of values. And I, and I think that is a tremendous shame because infrastructure is pretty easy to rebuild. It's actually really, really hard to recover your values once they start getting tarnished because hypocrisy is kryptonite to legitimacy. And I think, you know, I, I used to do a lot of training around the world uh, with different law enforcement and military units where I talk about counterterrorism and human rights. And one of the points I would often make at the beginning, I'd ask people to put their hands up and I'd say to the, the group, I'd say, I'd like a show of hands. Who um, admires the United States more today than they did 20 years ago, before September 11. As I say, I, I did these courses in Latin America, I did them in Africa, I did them in the Middle East, I did them in Central Asia, I did them in Western Europe. On only two occasions did people in the classroom put their hand up to say they admired the United States more post 9-11 than they did before. Um, and that, I think, is a very, very sobering thought. Soft power isn't everything, but it is a very, very powerful tool. And the United States used to have it, and it doesn't have as much of it as it did. Um, and I think in the, the coming um, superpower confrontation, or at least competition with China, that was the Western world's great edge, was having these soft power values that were attractive to everybody else. Whereas China doesn't really have anything to offer beyond Chinese nationalism, which isn't wildly attractive if you're not Chinese. Um, you, know, you know, the United States, Western Europe, we had something else that we could offer that was attractive to people around the world and that people really did want. And that brand has been massively tarnished now and, you know, for so little gain. And I, I think that is, you know, something we all need to reflect on a little bit. That, that's, a, that's a great point. That's a very powerful point. And I think our listeners will have a lot to think about. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great discussion. Your book, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, is available on Amazon, any bookstore. Um, is there anything you'd like to say about its availability for our listeners? Well, it, it's available, obviously, um, online, and uh, the ebook is probably the most affordable way to get hold of it. Um, the price does Great. seem to fluctuate a lot, but uh, um, if you catch the right moment, it, it's quite reasonable at least the electronic copy. Okay, great. So you heard that. Um, Tom, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful and informative discussion. We really appreciate you appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much. And it was an absolute pleasure. My name is Muna Gassim from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. This was Declaration. A big shout out to our sound editor, Max Parnell. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and we're available on all podcast streaming services. Thank you very much.